I on? Yep. All right. Take your Bible, turn with me to the book of John, chapter 20. John, chapter 20. Honor of God's Word, I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through verse 18. John 21 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, and the one of whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there. And the face cloth, which he had been on Jesus' head, was not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciple went back, the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and she wept. She stooped to look inside the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around, and she saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray, Lord, that the same spirit, Father, that uh, is the reason that Christ went to the Father so that we could be filled with the Spirit. That same Holy Spirit would give us insight into this word, insight into this truth. Father, protect us from the idea or the facts of the resurrection as just being simply those things that Christians believe. I, I pray that the reality of the resurrection would be so real and fresh to us once again. But Father, we don't just pass this off as a, as a seasonal reminder. But Father, the truth of the resurrection is our lifeblood. It's, it's the hope, it's the reason we get out of bed in the morning. It's our future. Everything is tied up 
into this reality. So I pray, Father, that you would give us insight into that, remind us of these things. But, Father, uh, help us to, uh, for those of us who, who have never put our faith or trust fully in the true, whole, full, resurrected Christ, I pray that, Lord, we would see ourselves in that light today and we would trust in you. Father, for those who uh, just have been kind of worn down from just life, and that's a lot of us in the last few years, just worn down. I, I pray that these truths, Father, would be uh, a, a cool, refreshing wind to our souls, that you would renew and restore our passion and our strength. Father, we give you all the glory for what you're going to do in the midst of your people today, and we just give this whole time into your hands. Come, Holy Spirit point to Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was uh, young, I pretty much grew up around gardens. My, my granddad had a huge garden. Uh, he lived on Lake Granbury and he had a, a house on a cove, and between the house and the lake, there was this huge garden. I mean, it was massive. And I loved to go out there. I loved to help them with it, and uh, I loved to eat from it. I, I love picking tomatoes and okra. You know, you get those things in your hands, and cucumbers, and, and watermelons were my favorite. He, he grew watermelons. Is, is there anything better than a garden-fresh tomato? Like those things they sell at the grocery store, I don't know what that is exactly, but I'm not sure that's a real tomato. My uh, grandmother and my aunt used to uh, can things. I don't know why they call it canning, because it was always in a jar. But they, they canned things, and so they would do their own jams and make their own pickles from, you'd grow cucumbers and okra and then and bring them in and pickle them. Uh, I would pick... Uh, while this was in Arlington, Texas, if you can believe this, because nobody could imagine, but this was a long, stinking time ago. But I used to pick wild grapes, wild grapes off of Arkansas Lane and, uh, and take them to my aunt, and she would turn them into jelly and, or jam and, uh, man, put that stuff on some, some buttered toast. Are you kidding me? I could finish off a jar of my grandmother's pickled okra in one sitting. I mean, just right after another. So good. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, I, I lived most of my life in the suburbs, though. Not really conducive so much to gardening. I, I've tried. Uh, I, I, I love to grow my own stuff, if that's possible. I, I don't really have a green thumb, and it hasn't worked out too, too well but there, there's nothing more exciting than seeing the whole process just kind of unfold and then slicing a tomato. And you're like, oh, I grew that. I grew that myself. And I do herbs. You know, how cool is it to go and say, oh, I need some basil for this, you know, Italian dish. And then you just literally go out in the backyard, come back with, with basil. My, my, uh, my family are kind of like, you got that out of the backyard. That's, it's the best kind. 
Uh, man, I just, I always loved it. I love getting my hands in dirt, in the dirt. Uh, I love anticipating the, the planting of seeds or, or little saplings. I, I love when uh, you see them sprout up and, and they begin to grow. And then it's always so exciting when they get that little flower on it because you know that flower, uh, as long as there's some good bees around, is going to turn into some form of vegetable in time. And so all of a sudden you see these little tiny tomatoes appear and you're like, oh, it's so excited. And peppers and, and melons. Man, I used to grow watermelons uh, in, in my back suburban yard. Those things will take over the entire backyard. I mean, they're just everywhere. And I get a watermelon about that big. They're always awful, right? That's one thing that I could never pull off is the same taste. But the whole thing, the whole thing about gardening is, is that it's really, a, it's a miracle. You're participating in a miracle. And it's so exciting. I also love the fact that, that God used gardening to tell a story. That, that God weaved the gospel story into the whole process of gardening. Uh, you, you take a seed, it's a dead seed, you bury it, then you anticipate, and then all of a sudden out of that deadness, life appears. Sprouts of new life begin to spring up from the dead. A, a seed turns into a vine or a plant that turns into a fruit, produces fruit, it gives nourishment, it gives life. And then the incredible thing about it is that they themselves reproduce because these fruits have seeds in them which you can turn around and start the whole process all over again. Jesus said in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Yeah, I've read that passage a hundred times, but the reality of it really just kind of struck me uh, this particular week because I read that and I thought, what a, what a strange thing to say. <laughs> what an odd reality that is. That unless it dies, right, there will be no fruit. It has to die in order for it to bear fruit. That doesn't make sense because life is what gives fruit. And Jesus says, no, actually, it has to start with death. And you, and you think about that, everything we eat comes from that reality. Right? It, it had to die first. If it dies, it bears much fruit. Uh, the resurrection is, is woven into the whole story of creation. It's, it's everywhere. All of creation is, is preaching resurrection. There's simple things that we kind of take for granted that, that are, are just normal parts of our routine of the day. And the reality is, is that those normal, everyday things are preaching the greatest truth in all of the universe. Every day, for example, ends with the sun going down right? But what happens? You go to bed, you wake up, new morning, new morning, a new sunrise, new life, right? Every night you go to sleep, 
and every morning, hopefully, you wake up, right? At least everybody in here did today, right? You go to sleep, you wake up. You go to sleep, you're unconscious, you don't know what in the world's going on, and then all of a sudden, boom, you wake up. That happens every single night. Have you ever wondered why? Why do we need that? Why did God make us that way? Could it simply be not so much that, well, because we need our rest, which we do, but maybe it's simply because he has put within us in our pattern of life resurrection. Have you, you, you ever think about springtime? You know, you, you look around, all of these trees and, and, and the grass and everything was just dead. Everything was brown all winter long. And then all of a sudden, everything changes. All of a sudden, everything turns green or colorful. I was thinking about that when I, when I was looking up here, and I was like, man, just this explosion of, of color. And, and it occurred to me, why in the world do you think that, 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 that God, you know, I know he's an artist, and, and I know that he loves beauty. He created the whole concept, but he, he made these flowers with all of these colors. And, it, and it's, it's just this reality that in the winter, there's no color. There's one color, brown. Everything's brown, everything's dead. And then all of a sudden, spring, boom, you get this. Why? Because even in the seasons, there's that story of death turned to life. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. Everything that you eat, Everything that you eat comes from plants, vegetables, or, or meat. Everything had to die first in order for you to have life. Everything. It's in every breath that you take, every single breath, right? We, we, we breathe in oxygen, and we breathe out carbon dioxide. Oxygen gives us life. This, this carbon dioxide is actually waste gas in our body that has to come out. If we breathe nothing but that, we would die. That's why we got carbon dioxide detectors in our homes, because it's dangerous. So we, we breathe in life, and then death, life, death, every breath, resurrection. It's in everything. Resurrection is infused in the entirety of the creation. Every single seed carries the gospel in it. Well, Jesus, he, he likened everything to that idea of, of seeds and gardening. Jesus likened the spread of the gospel to a man who went out and sowed seeds. He said the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed, the tiniest seed that turns into a tree which the birds from the nations can come and rest in. So then it's no wonder that when God created the first man and the first woman, that he put them in a garden. And their first assignment, their only assignment, was to be gardeners. It's man's occupation from the beginning. Put them in the garden. He created a garden. God created a garden. That makes God the OG, the original gardener. <laughs> and mankind's first occupation was to garden. Genesis chapter 2, 
8 through 9, it says this. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man that he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You skip down verse 15 and 17. So the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. He's a gardener. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are to free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Adam was given one law, one restriction. He had paradise all to his own. He had a garden teeming with all kinds of trees and plants and food that give life and nourishment. There was just one tree, one. There was just one tree that he couldn't eat from, a death tree. Have you seen those, those books that are, are titled Eat This and Not That? Right? Those are interesting books because, you know, you, you, things that we try to get sold on are like, this is healthy, you should eat this. Then you discover that actually it's not healthy at all. One of, one of the greatest things I learned from that book is uh, that turkey bacon is bad for you. Isn't that great news? It was like, no, man, don't, don't even bother. It's full of sodium. You might as well just eat the real thing. It's better for you. <laughs> Hallelujah. Right? Eat this and not that. Well, Adam and Eve had one thing in their book. One thing. You can eat all of this, just not this. One thing. Because if you eat of it, it will kill you. It will kill you. Now, I think about that, and I thought, you know, Adam and Eve at that moment, they would not have even known what death was. What a strange concept that must have been. They'd never tasted of death's sting. They've never seen anything die, right? But I think that's actually beside the point because the reality is, is whether they understood what it was or not, God gave them a clear instruction just don't do that. Which, of course, is exactly what they did. One tree, it was too much. It's kind of like what Michael said a while ago, you know, don't, don't look. And God says, don't eat. And then all of a sudden, that, that was the tree that is like, oh, man, I bet, that, I bet that tree has got some seriously good food. At least that's what Satan tried to convince them of and actually did convince them of. And because Adam and Eve are the parents of the entire human race, what they did has trickled down and affected all of humanity. The, the next thing they know and realize is that they are naked. They, they always have been uh, so free from, from self-focus uh, up to this point, but now all of a sudden all they can think of as themselves. The Bible said they were naked and knew no shame. Now they're 
filled with shame and are aware that they're naked. And so shame has entered the picture, sin has entered the picture, and so in their shame they hide from one another and they hide from God. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. Pointing fingers, blaming one another, welcome to paradise lost. As a result of their disobedience, God would level upon the first couple, and not only upon the first couple, but these three curses would affect the entirety of the human race for all of history, including today. He leveled three different curses upon humanity in the world. Three. The first is that he would put hostility between mankind and Satan. In other words, the world which had been protected from the evil one. He wasn't even here until he was cast out from heaven. The whole world is now a spiritual war zone. That wasn't what it was like in Eden. It's what it's like now. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's a, a word spoken to the serpent. Now there will be enmity, there will be hatred, there will be division between you and the woman and her offspring. Well, that's all of humanity. That's all of us. Next, he declared that there would be a dysfunctional element that would now exist in all human relationships going forward. From Adam and Eve to their children, to their children's children, through every generation. There would be division that would affect every marriage relationship all the way to national wars, nations at war with one another. Here's the curse, Genesis 3.16. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So giving birth is, is marked by pain. And that's not just a physical reality, right? It's marked by pain in the fact that this new little human being is, is being created and birthed in pain. It's, it's, it's a picture of the fact that this new little human being is going to come into a world where, where he or she is going to face their own pain, their own suffering. And there's going to be division and power struggles between human beings rather than self-giving love. Whether that's a marriage, whether that's parents and their kids, whether that's nations. And as far as the third curse, well, that affected the garden itself. Our first experience and what we were created, our purpose in the garden, is now turned into our eviction. God gave them an eviction notice. Instead of a garden paradise, they would now plant outside of the garden by the sweat of their brow. Genesis 3, 17 through 19 says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. You will, it will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your brow. You will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, 
and dust you will return. Wow. Welcome to life outside of the garden. Outside of God's perfect design, original design for humanity. Now there's spiritual warfare. Now there's broken relationships. Now the ground is cursed. Now there is painful toil. And worst of all, now there is death. To dust you shall return. Now you, you may think of that whole story, that whole beginning story is is maybe something that's a little far-fetched, or, or maybe you think, well, that's just ridiculous. It's kind of a, sounds like a child's story. Too childlike for our modern sensibilities. Gardens, talking serpents, forbidden fruit. And, and that's fine if you think that. I, I happen to think that it is historical reality. But even if you could conceive of it as a metaphor, just a metaphor, you would have to admit that as a metaphor, it pretty much explains the way the world is. It, it, it gives credibility to the pain and suffering. It explains why life is so hard and painful, why, why relationships are so difficult. It explains everything. You take that out of the picture, how do you explain it? Now, you may think that it's far-fetched, but it seems to explain the reality. When in the same exact week, for example, this is what, what, two weeks ago, in the same exact week, you hear of a school shooting at a Christian school, and then you see devastation from tornadoes. And you go, something's wrong. Something is wrong with the world. Yeah, it's cursed. It is cursed. You see the curse in full display. It wasn't supposed to be this way. It's just not the way it was supposed to be. But what we discover in the scriptures is God had a plan to reverse it. To reverse everything. Which brings us back to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. Uh, and it's been a dark weekend in Jerusalem. When we turn here, uh, it, it seems that a, a culture of death and the fall has pretty much won the ultimate victory over the giver of life. Uh, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has been executed by the joined forces of the church and state. Not so much the church, but religion and state. The followers of Jesus are devastated, as you might imagine. Because last time they were with Jesus, guess where it was? In a garden. They were with Jesus in a garden. The Garden of Gethsemane. And there, we discover that Jesus fought off Satan's strongest temptation yet. Which was to basically refuse to drink the cup of God's wrath and go to the cross and save humanity. To avoid the cross. And it was also there in a garden that... Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss on the cheek. Jesus is arrested. He is removed from the garden, much like Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. And while Adam and Eve had failed their test in the garden, Jesus was victorious on our behalf 
in his garden temptation. And so now we are here in John chapter 20, and guess where we find ourselves? In a garden. Jesus has been buried in a garden tomb, and the first follower of the tomb to visit the morning of the resurrection was a woman by the name of Mary Magdalene. Now, Mary is an interesting figure. There are several Marys mentioned in the gospel. We also know from, from other accounts that, that Mary Magdalene was with another Mary in this particular visitation, but John wants to focus on Mary Magdalene. She often, Mary Magdalene, is often falsely accused of being a prostitute. Maybe you've always thought Mary Magdalene, ah, yeah, she's, you know, ex-prostitute. Well, actually, that came from Gregory the Great in the 6th century, who was a pope. Uh, it did not come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. There is nowhere in the Bible that says that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, nor was she Jesus' secret wife, which was actually suggested by Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. You remember that thing? Well, he got that from some Gnostic uh, old writings that came way after Jesus, uh, after the first, second, third, fourth century, around in that time. That is absolute garbage. Here's what we do know. We do know that Mary Magdalene is a woman whom Jesus cast out seven demons. That's what we know. And ever since that time, she was a devoted follower of Jesus. So this Mary, Mary Magdalene, along with another Mary, which is probably the, the mother of James, not Jesus' mother, uh, went to the tomb before sunrise, only to discover that the stone in front of the tomb had been rolled away and the body of Jesus was gone. Shocked and confused, as you would be, she runs and tells the other disciples, He's gone. Imagine that. Imagine getting woke up with that news. He's not there. What are you talking about? He's not there. So I love this part of the story because it, it makes me chuckle every time. It says that Peter and John literally raced to the tomb. Who's this written by? John. So we're going to get John's perspective on this race and he's going to make sure that we understand that he won the race. Why he had to put that kind of detail in there, we both ran to the tomb, and the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be me, the disciple whom Jesus loved got to the tomb first. Just saying. It's almost like, you know, I, I, I see these two guys as kind of having this ongoing kind of competitive thing between them and fun. You know, and, and it kind of works its way out here. So John, it says, gets to the tomb first. He stops short, and he just kind of peeks in. And then here comes Peter. And I, I picture Peter, kind of a, a linebacker kind of guy. And, and he just, he can't stop. And so he just rumbles right past John, straight into the tomb. And they get in there, and all they see is the grave clothes of Jesus. And then also it says that separate from the grave clothes was the, the shroud that covered his face, which interestingly, we are told, was folded up. 
Interesting. The Greek word here for headcloth comes from the, the Latin word, which means to sweat. Right? So it, it can refer to kind of a towel that was used to wipe sweat off from one's face. So apparently what is explained here is that his body was wrapped up in a grave cloth, kind of like a mummy, and then there was this, this shroud that was placed over his face. You got the picture. And so they go in there, and the grave clothes are over here, and the, the thing that was covering his face, this towel thing, was folded up over here to the side. Nobody knows why it was folded up, right? Perhaps Jesus was a neat freak. Uh, maybe it was his way of saying, hey, look, I, I rose from the dead. No sweat. I don't know why he did it. There's a story circulating around on the internet, and maybe you've read it about, well, the folding up thing was the story about a napkin. It was a napkin that was used, uh, and when you know, the servant was watching his master's table, the master would wad up the napkin, throw it down, and he used to be like, I'm done. But if he folded it up, it meant I'll come back problem with that is that story originated in 2007 prior to that there is there's literally no no jewish historical record of that ever happening so we don't know why it was folded up i love the fact that there is that kind of detail because here's what that tells me the fact that there is so much detail tells us that what they saw is what they saw because the reality is is you're not going to give that kind of detail to something you didn't see the description of the empty tomb with the details validate the historical reality of the account in other words no one is going to take up these kinds of details if they didn't actually witness that you just wouldn't do that and so john and peter uh, were told they didn't stick around the empty tomb. They went back home because they didn't understand that Jesus had to rise from the dead. But I do like the little fact here that it says, uh, John believed. <laughs> I believed. The rest of these jokers, they didn't get it. But they go back, even John, and apparently he believed, but not enough to stay. So he goes back. I don't know what, what you just, yep, it's empty. Grab some breakfast. I mean, I don't know what's happening here. They go back, but Mary stayed, and she waited, and she wept, it says. Jesus uh, is gone, and she can't possibly conceive of what has happened to him. So it says that she's, she's weeping outside the tomb, and she decides she's already seen you know, that he's not in there, so she looks again. This time, we're told that the tomb is not empty. This time there are two angels. One is sitting where Jesus' head was. One is sitting where his feet was. They're sitting there, spread out from one another. And this is where the story gets kind of funky. Because they say, woman, why are you weeping? And the crazy part about it is she, like, responds. I mean, it's not like you're going, hey, what? How did you two get in here? I mean, is, 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 there's two glowing figures in here. It's like she's so 
taken back by the empty tomb, that the fact that there's angels in there doesn't really seem to strike her. She's so focused on the fact that Jesus is gone. And they ask her, why are you weeping? And she says, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. So she doesn't accuse them of it. So at this point, she has no idea that Jesus is alive. She thinks that Jesus is dead. That's why she weeps. She thinks that he's dead. And now, on top of that, she doesn't know where his body is. All right? She is, in a word, hopeless. Hopeless. All hope has died with Jesus. All hope is literally banished. And when hope is gone, here's the reality, not only for Mary Magdalene, but in your own life, when you have no hope, when hope vanishes, life becomes meaningless. There's not a huge abundance of of hope in the world today. The the optimism of, of the past is gone. The optimism of modernism that we have the potential through our technology and our our uh, understanding of reality can make this world better that we can give further generations a, a better world well that doesn't seem to be panning out real well uh, there was this philosopher guy by the name of Hegel who told us, uh, philosophers are weird people, and and, and yet it's amazing, because they come up with these things that nobody can really understand. They write these books, and you read them, and you go, what? And so they make no sense, and somehow they seem to have this trickle-down effect, and then this this obscure guy with his thoughts becomes the normal reality of the culture. Strange. And so there was this guy by the name of Hegel who said that every age would just get better and better and better. Well, obviously, he was wrong. So is there any hope or is there only recourse if Hegel is saying that the world's getting better and it's not? Then it seems like there's nothing left to do but to weep. And the hope... Our hope remains the same. Hope is rebirth and an encounter with the risen Christ. It's not going to be in any politician. It's not going to be in any governmental system. It's not going to be in that pay race. It's not going to be in this situation in your life fixing itself. I mean, we all, we all have that kind of hope, but that's not the ultimate hope. That hope is based on other realities having to fall into place. There has to be a steady hope about the future. The only place you can find that is in Christ and in the resurrection. Mary expresses her hopelessness and confusion to the angels. I don't know where he is. She's so distraught. She doesn't even realize that she's talking to angels or she doesn't care. And she's so just beside herself. And then it happens. There's a voice behind her. She turns around. She turns around. And she encounters Christ. 
And the voice behind her, even though she doesn't recognize as Jesus yet, asks the same exact question. Why, woman, woman, very impersonal, woman, why are you weeping? She doesn't know it's Jesus. And check this out. This is my favorite part. She thought it was the gardener. They're in a garden. She thought it was the gardener. Do you see what John's doing there? Right? She thinks that this guy talking to her is the gardener, and in fact, he is. He is the OG. He's the original gardener. He is the one who has defeated the three curses. He has crushed the serpent's head. He has defeated death. He has won the war. He has defeated man's war against one another by making a whole new humanity for himself. He has opened the way so that we can return back to the garden. Paradise. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite people to quote, said this. I love this. Isn't he awesome looking? On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and in a semblance of a gardener. God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. Isn't that awesome? I'll leave that up there for a moment because I just got chills and y'all don't seem to be as excited about that. (laughs) Humanity sinned in a garden and was kicked out of the garden, right? Jesus conquered death in a garden and opened the way for us to go home back to the garden. He's reversed it all. This is is not a time for weeping. Why are you weeping, woman? Two times. Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Because Jesus is dead, and I don't know where they've taken him. And how often do we weep for the same reason? How often do we weep and act as though our pain and our loss have had the last word to us? How many times do we think that we are without hope? Mary is distraught because she can't see the resurrected Lord. To Mary, he's just the gardener. And then he goes from woman and he calls her by name. Mary. And all of a sudden, she sees. She sees. How many times had Jesus said her name in the past with tenderness and compassion? After Jesus cast out seven demons out of her, taking over her, that had taken over her life and taken over her identity, after she's been delivered and set free from demonic oppression. She heard Jesus call her name, Mary. That's who you are. Mary, 
Calling a person by their name is saying, I acknowledge who you are. I know you. I see you. And now once again, having disarmed all of Satan's grip on the world, he did to the world the same thing he did to Mary. He says her name. The risen Christ knows your name. He knows you by name. John 10, 3 says, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You're not a, a number to him, right? It's not like going, oh, you're one of mine in this big mass history of people. You're not just a, a number in a crowd. You're not an acquaintance. He knows you by your name. He knows your name. He knows every hair that you have on your head. He knows you're rising up and you're sitting down. And he calls you by your name to follow him, to unite your life with his. That's what he does. Jesus speaks her name, Mary. And she turns around and she says to him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Teacher. Oh, I love this part. Right? In Israel, in the first century, when you called someone your rabbi or your teacher, right, it, it, it was the same thing as saying, I am your follower. I will follow you wherever you go. I will do everything that you do. I will stick so close to you that the dust you kick up off your feet will cover me. That's how close I'm going to stay to you. Wherever you go, that's where I am. I am your disciple. I am your apprentice. I am your clay. You are my potter. Mold me into whatever you want. Do you see just what happened there? What a huge difference. A, a minute ago, her life was filled with hopelessness. She's weeping. Jesus calls her by name, and now all of a sudden her whole life is given purpose. Just like that. To follow the living Christ. To be his apprentice. That same encounter produces the same result to this very day. It, it happened to millions and millions of people throughout the last two millennia. Same story. So you might try to explain away the resurrection, but you can't explain away millions of unchanged lives. Unlike the fragile hope of the world getting better, one generation at a time or the pessimism of this world is just getting worse and worse the resurrection restores our hope into a whole different kind of future doesn't it right? an entire new one the resurrection guarantees our eternal inheritance in christ ephesians 1 says in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of the inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory so jesus's resurrection is the first fruits the first fruits garden right first fruits of which this material world will be one day renewed back to the garden paradise that we were vanquished from. Eden will be restored. Tim Keller says it like this. 
It will be a world where justice dwells. Every tear will be wiped away. Death and destruction are banished forever. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb. These are lyrical, poetic ways of saying that this world will be mended, made new, liberated from its bondage to death and decay. Revelation 22, if you kind of want to look at how this thing's going to pan out, you read the end of the book. It says this in verses 1 through 5, Then the angel showed me the river of water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. Where are we at? We're back to Eden. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. We're back to the garden. Now check this out. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. And his servants will serve him. We're going back to gardening, people. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you are a flower of Christ, or excuse me, a follower of Christ, it kind of works. Uh, this is your future. That's your future. We're going back home. We're going back to the garden. So take, the Bible says, we'll take our, our, our weapons of this world and we will take and restore them back to plowshares. We're, we're going back to farm tools. There is no curse. It's been removed. There is no spiritual warfare. He's been defeated. Our relationships will be perfect just like they were meant to be. And we'll be back in the garden. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be so glorious that we don't even need the sun. Photosynthesis is all coming out of Jesus, I guess. Now, maybe you're here today and, and you're really going through some trials. And you're going through some stuff and, and you're thinking to yourself, man, that, that's great news about the future. Well, someday... But my problem is I'm not sure if I'm going to make it through the week. What does the resurrection have to say about my life now? Right now. What good is it now? I mean, that's great. I love the fact that one day when I die, that, that that's my future. But what about now? Look at Jesus' res, uh, response to Mary basically going, you are my rabbi, you are my teacher. Verse 17, he says something weird. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet attended, ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Let me paraphrase what Jesus just said here. Mary, Mary, I know that you're clinging tightly right now. So when she says, rabbi, right, like I'm going to follow you, I'm never going to, she's basically literally grabbing hold of him. I'm going to fall. I'm not letting go. I'm not losing you again. You're stuck with me. And Jesus says, Mary, I know. 
I know why you're clinging to me so tightly. You know, you thought you lost me. You're, you're, you're grieving, you were grieving what has now been restored to you. But here's the thing, man, I need you to trust, I need you to trust what I'm about to say to you. I'm going to ascend to the Father. I'm going to sit in my place in heaven at his right hand. I'm going to go away. However, I'm going to send to you my Holy Spirit, and the Spirit will not be beside you or someone outside of you that you can cling to because the Spirit is going to be within you. In other words, my presence, if I go, my presence will be more available to you than it is right now. My presence, you can be even closer to me than you are here clinging to me. And that's true not just of Mary, that's true of every single one of us. That's true of every person who's willing to follow Jesus into the future. You can experience the, the risen Lord closer than Mary is at this moment, who is physically wrapped around him. And Jesus is saying, you can get closer than that, and I can get closer to you. Do, do you see that? The resurrection means that you have Jesus with you no matter where you go, no matter what day or age you're living in or no matter what you're going through this resurrected jesus is not just out there one of these days in the future he's here now he's here now jesus says my father is now your father my god is your god right your 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 union with me makes my father your father he is your god and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. The resurrection has changed the whole relationship dynamic that we can have with God. No longer is God beyond our reach. No longer do we have to walk on eggshells around God fearing him. He is our, our perfect, divine, gracious, loving father. And his love for us is never based on our performance but on his unquenchable love. Jesus is the ongoing, ever-present gardener within you. I, I love that. Um, picture yourself as, as the garden. Right? God plants his new life in you. Your old life is like a seed. That seed has been buried and dead. And up rises new life. He says he's made us all new creations. And you spring up new life and growth. Romans 6, 4 says we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too may walk in newness of life. We sang that. right? If you walked out of the grave, I'm walking too. Jesus is cultivating you. He is constantly, he's the gardener in your life. He is cultivating you. He is working in you. He's pulling up weeds of past wounds. 
He, he kills sin like he kills an insect that destroys you. He keeps you watered with the word of God and prayer. He's shining the radiance of his sun upon you constantly. He is fertilizing you with church life. He is giving you life saving and giving sap that comes from abiding in him. And he wants to take your life and he wants to make you flourish and fruitful. He wants to turn you into his garden, a garden of praise, a garden of glory. Jesus said in John 15, 8, this is my, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. There's this infinite difference in knowing God and knowing about God. The resurrection means that uh, we have more than faith in the historical Jesus. We do have faith in the historical Jesus. We believe that Jesus was, was a real historic. All these things are historical truth. We believe that, but that's, that's not all we have. Right, Because it means also because he's risen that we have a walking, talking relationship with the same Jesus in these pages in our real ordinary daily life. Right, We have the same Jesus that the disciples walked and talked with. We have him living within us. And that was way too much for Mary to keep to herself. And so the good news of this this incredible story she goes man i gotta go tell these i gotta go tell those disciples mary magdalene the first missionary mary magdalene the demon possessed woman jesus's first eyewitness to resurrection and she goes to them and she says i have seen the lord I ask you today, have you, have you seen him, right? Not with your physical eyes, uh, but with the eyes of your heart. Have you heard him call your name? Not audibly, perhaps, but with the ears of your heart. It, you, you can't empirically say you have encountered him with your senses, maybe, but you, through his resurrection, you know that it's true. You know he lives. You have a relationship with him. Right? You, you, sense, you have sensed his call. You've heard your name called by him. How many of you have experienced what I'm talking about? How many? Amen. If Jesus is is like that, then that's what it means to know him. If that whole thing that I'm talking about is a foreign to you, you can change that reality today. You can know him personally. You, you can know him just like Mary Magdalene, not just a set of facts. You can actually know him because he is alive, he is available, and he still saves. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, for the resurrection. We thank you, Father, for these truths that, that, uh, that they just ignite the soul. And, and so, Father, we pray that uh, if there's anybody here who, who doesn't know you, maybe they know some facts, 
Maybe they, maybe they know, you know, certain historical parts of the story. Maybe they know the whole story, but they don't know you. I, I pray, Lord, that you would convince and show them that truth and that you would call them. Father, you, you speak in a still, small voice, and so I pray in the, the depth of their heart that they would hear their name spoken by you, the resurrected Lord. Call, call us by name and let us hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.